Well, welcome to another episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast. So the last two weeks or so, we've been a little scarce, so we're sorry about that. We've uh, been working on a few things, took a little bit of time off for the 4th of July Independence Day holiday, um, but have decided to kind of dig in a little bit into something that I recorded a little while back that we were kind of holding back maybe for a, a different time of the year or maybe to do something else with it, but I think this would be a great time to share this with you. Uh, this is an episode that I recorded with a good friend of mine, Gary Lockie from LaGrange, Tennessee. Uh, Gary is 98 years old and is a World War II veteran. Uh, he's also a bird hunter. Uh, he has worked bird dogs his entire life and has hunted at pretty much every state where birds are found. Um, he was also one of the founders of the National Bird Dog Museum in Grand Junction, Tennessee. He served on the USS Laws in the Pacific Theater in World War II was a part of the naval bombardment of Okinawa and Iwo Jima during the island campaign out in the Marshall Islands. Um, it was a real treat to talk to him. So I grew up in LaGrange. It's a town of probably 80 to 100 people, kind of depending on the count and depending on who's counting themselves in in the, in the town or not. But um, when I was a little kid, I used to run up to the general store, probably at five or six years old. And uh, the general store didn't sell anything, but uh, we had coffee and other things like that for the old guys when they came to check their mail. So it was my job to go up and start a fire in the fireplace and put a pot of coffee on. And uh, I would just listen to all these guys' stories. And Gary was one of those guys. And so it's fun for me to get a chance to talk to him and for me to help share his story. So we're going to do this in a couple-part series. So this is uh, part one of Gary Lockie, Bird Hunter. I want to apologize in advance. The first five or ten minutes of audio has a few little whirs and other sounds in there that <laughs> might not bother you, but as an editor of the podcast, it sure bothers me. Uh, Gary has hearing aids, so you know years of service in the Navy and bird hunting has uh, affected his hearing, as one might imagine. But uh, we uh, we figured it out. He ended up just pulling them out, and I cranked up the volume on the on the audio, so we we made it work. But Wanted to go ahead and apologize for that in advance. It will get better. Get up. Welcome, folks. Y'all come on in and make yourself at home. This here, well, this is the Rolling Thunder Podcast. Your home for all things Rolling Thunder. This episode of the Rolling Thunder podcast is presented by Mossy Oak Camouflage because everything is better in Bottomland and Lucky Duck Premium Decoys, Masters of Deception. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. Good. Good. Well, Gary, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Absolutely. So, how have y'all been in all this? Well, now, during this... Uh virus thing we've been at home most of the time but now we've um tried to play ball according to the rules and go see our doctors <laughs> yeah and, uh but it hasn't been a, a big problem for us and uh we've gotten along fine and good we're not mad with anybody <laughs> <laughs> so gary when we first talked you said something pretty interesting to me 
He said something along the lines of, you're 98, and you've been hunting for 90 years. Well, I, I told uh, somebody that I've been hunting quail for 90 years. <laughs> um, so I guess let's go back. Where where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, North Carolina, about 30 miles south of um, Fort Bragg. Okay. A little place called Pembroke, North Carolina. Uh, there's a lot of Indians there, and uh, I <clears throat> went to school there until I was in the 10th grade. And... Uh, my grandfather wanted me to have a little better education, hmm. so uh, he took me to Camden, South Carolina. That's where I graduated from high school. Okay. But now, back in my days, we only had 11 grades. Instead of now, you kids have 12 grades, so you all get more. A, yeah, they got a uh, little better. Uh, 4K, JK, K, first, second, yeah. you know, the whole deal. So, so you all a little more. Uh, educated oh, when you go to college that. and I was <laughs> but then after a year with him I went to the University of South Carolina and that's okay. where I went to college okay and uh while I was in college I went to into the Naval ROTC and I uh, got commissioned mm-hmm. as the equivalent of a second lieutenant but in the Navy they're ensigns ensigns okay and uh and uh then World War Two came along. Uh, you know, we declared war in 1941. I graduated in 1943. And I went to uh, put a new destroyer commission in the Seattle-Tacoma mm-hmm. shipyards out in the state of Washington. Yes, sir. And I was off into the Pacific for the rest of the war. What, what destroyer were you on? Uh, the USS Laws. It was called... Uh, oh. One of the Fletcher class destroyers, and uh, they call them twenty one hundred tonners. Twenty one hundred tonners. And uh, stayed out there until the war ended. Mm. So you were in the Pacific Theater the entire time. Yeah. Where did you Where did you serve? Where were you mostly when you were out? Well, well, well when the combat, I got out there while we were in the Marshall Islands. Okay. And then, uh, if you check with your dad on the history. <laughs> okay. We did what we call uh, island hopping. Oh, yes. And uh, this island hopping consisted of <coughs> landing Marines or mm-hmm. Army, setting up a base, and getting prepared to move forward. To so the next, going from one from to another to another. The Marshall Islands, to the Carolina Islands, to the islands in the Palau. Then we went to... Uh, Philippines, mm-hmm. and then of course, with the uh, the task force that we were working with, we made raids on Japan. We made raids on uh, Formosa. We made raids on South Vietnam and uh, through the South China Sea. So we ended up at uh, uh, I mean, what to Saipan. Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Wow. And we stayed at Okinawa until the war ended. And uh, we started the Okinawa campaign like uh, seven days before the troops landed. Mm. And we did a lot of shore bombardment. So I was going to ask, so y- y'all were doing that that pre, pre-landing pre bombardment with the, the, the just shelling it. Of it. Anti-air 
warfare. Mm-hmm. Went on the picket station. Mm-hmm. Now you know what a picket is. I believe a picket is you break off into a few destroyer destroyers or battleships and you go off into yeah, in other off words, on your own and you do a, a picket mi- can say be a hundred or so miles away mm-hmm. and then war- warn your uh, main body or your your main forces right. of air coming uh, air raids. So the picket, you're you're essentially the decoy. Your well, job is to go get shot at first if there is something. Well, that's right. In yeah. other words, a lot of ships. Now, I was a lucky guy. I don't know whether somebody was praying for us more than they were praying for somebody else. <laughs> but uh, we stayed on the number one picket station. We were on several of the picket stations at first and sundry times. And then when you were on the picket station to warn the yeah your main forces, we were doing shore bombardment. So uh, at Okinawa... I like to tell people we wore out our guns uh, <laughs> shooting a, uh, uh, doing shore bombard. But now, uh, the thing that I guess is sort of the most exciting is uh, one of the things that uh, I mentioned, you know, like quail hunting. <laughs> uh, I was born in a family of people that love dogs. Mm-hmm. And a people, uh, family that people hunted. My grandfather was a hunter. My father was a hunter. I had uh, two brothers, and we were all. Uh, we told somebody said, "Hey, did you all ever do anything besides hunt?" I said, "Well, Why? yes, we did, <laughs> but uh, uh, <coughs> we became. Uh, some of us were." obsessed with hunting Mm -hmm. and some of us were uh, addicted to hunting and (laughs) uh, but uh, that was sort of like our hobbies and absolutely and those were probably the only hobbies that we had we weren't golfers we weren't tennis players uh, except now my dad was a baseball player he played played baseball and uh we actually uh my father is a farmer Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked a uh, farm. We had, had cotton. We had tobacco. We was just back in the days when you had mules. We didn't yeah. know what a tractor was and never had a tractor. And we had uh, uh, did all of our farming with mules and small machinery and stuff like that. So obviously uh, we had... Large family, six kids, yeah. and uh, soon as we were five or six, you started working on the farm. So there was nothing uh, unusual about that. Yeah. But now, what was your first job that you were given when you when you turned five or six? They said, "Well, I think uh, I used to have to help put the hay in. Mm-hmm. We've all picked cotton." And You're talking thing, picking cotton by one hand. One thing you don't want to ever have to do is pick cotton by hand. So you got to be grateful for the guy that invented the uh, cotton picker. So, right. uh, and when you're picking cotton by hand, you need a lot of a lot of hands. Whereas now I'm not aware of anybody that picks cotton with hands. Everybody that farms now picks cotton with a machine. Oh yeah, absolutely. But now the one thing that we but. Uh, now, one of the things that's labor-intensive is raising tobacco. Mm. Now, what in our part of the country raised what they call 
flu-cured tobacco, and then if you move to East Tennessee and Kentucky, they raise uh, something like uh, air cures. You know, you you put it in a a barn, a drying just, barn, and just, just gradually air let air cures. air air cure itself. So when you say flu cure, are you saying that there's like there's a they build a fire under it, and then the draft? No, what of you do the, is uh, back in my day we had uh, a furnace, mm-hmm. and you had a. Uh, uh, Equivalent to um, pipes about this big around, or or uh, where you line a inside the barn, mm-hmm. and you stoke the furnace, and you got a thermometer, and you you control the uh, heat in the furnace by stoking in or stoking out. So almost uh, that's labor intensive. I bet the business of raising is is. Labor intensive. You start in January with putting a hot bed in, so to speak. So, so when you say a hot bed, you mean you're raising it in a in, in a, a, a control situation. Okay. In other words, it's really outside, but you got a, a netting over it that keeps it warm enough. Mm. And then you, if you got a nice sunny day, you take the netting off and pick out the little weeds and so forth until you get plants say about this tall. And that's what you transplant that, and it watch it grow. Yeah, and you got to make sure you keep the worms off of it because you're selling leaves. That's right. And if the worms eat the leaves, you don't have anything to sell. <laughs> that's so, right. Uh, uh, that's uh, I always said tobacco was more labor intensive than anything else we did. But now the other thing you did back in uh, we're talking about. Uh, I was born in 1922. That you uh, you got these ant farm animals, mm-hmm. and you gotta you gotta feed them all, and gotta take feed care them all winter long, you keep them well, and yeah, regardless of uh, whether you like it or not, they've got to be fed and uh, conditions and everything. And, and we had two of those, so uh, we had hay and fodder and we corn grain, yeah, that they were fed throughout the winter, and we had. Uh, Two milk cows, so I learned to milk cows by hand at a very tender age, and uh, <laughs> so I that sort of hated that job as more, more than anything mm. because so early. It's a twice a day job. So was this when you were about? <laughs> I don't know. So you went from hay to I don't know eight years old. You're doing the milking. Or well, was that I, seven? I guess I, I did probably I was a little older, maybe ten years old when I started milking. But uh, I hey. I was proficient. <laughs> <laughs> so are we talking Jersey cows? What kind of cows are these? Well, we had Jerseys and Guernseys. Uh, those okay. were uh, the ones that had the highest butter fat. But now mm-hmm. the people that, um, that had the most milk were the Holsteins. Okay. I mean, they're a bigger breed, I think. They uh, they give more volume of milk. But the Jerseys and the Jerseys were the ones that had more. Butterfat. Yeah. Like Jersey cow milk is so good, especially when they. Huh? Jersey cow milk is great. <laughs> we, there's a couple, there's a farm in, out near Oxford that, that does their own milk. Okay. And uh, brown dairy, and they have a lot of Jersey cows. Okay. It's really okay. good, and they make, I'm pretty fond of their chocolate yep. milk. But, And I think so. the breed came from uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm trying to think with all the farm work, when did you have time to hunt? 
Well, the, the thing that, uh, and you got to go to school. And school. Don't forget. It's not, let's not <laughs> well, in other that. words, when uh, we'd start at school at five years of age. Okay. And uh, there was always some kind of chore that the kids could do. But when it, uh, when I got to be like six, seven, or eight, I wanted to go with my dad hunting. Now, I'm not big enough to have a gun. But now I tried to anticipate the jobs that I would have to do on Saturday. See, in school for five days. Right. And then uh, I tried to anticipate the jobs that you uh, did on Saturday so I could go with hemp hunting on Saturday. Right. So you tried to get those jobs done throughout the yeah, week. Throughout the week. In other there you words, go. you got to haul in the wood. You got to haul in the coal. We had the coal and wood. And uh, any leaves, if you had to rake leaves, hey. Well, give me my jobs doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so That's beautiful. you don't have an excuse for me to have to say, uh, <laughs> yeah. I need to go hunting on for Saturday. Exactly. Tell me what that list is but so I can knock it out. by the time I was 12, I was allowed to have a gun, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I guess every time I got a chance to go uh, hunting, I did. And then when I moved in with my grandfather for that one year, uh, I could go hunting every saturday but he he had somebody that would take me mm. on saturday because he was a preacher and he, he visited was... the sick on saturday okay so he always lined somebody up to take me hunting and That's... i thought it was because i was such a good guy and popular guy that <laughs> you somebody... always had somebody different to hunt with <laughs> somebody showed up at the house and uh they carry you along take me hunting so what uh, was the well now the... once you got to college the only time you could hunt was just uh holidays when you could come home but mm-hmm. i managed to to hunt some but now i also worked my way through college so uh i didn't have time for a lot of sports like the kids today uh, sure um so I wasn't proficient in any particular sport, uh, except in college I did run track. But uh, what? Well, that's not that's nothing to sniff at right there. Well, I, I, what I was your it. what was I, your event? Huh? What was your event? Uh, the mile, one mile. That's but a now when that's a brutal. I do the four forty and the eight eighties. We call them uh, yards. I think to do meters now. Yeah. Yep. 440 and the 880. That's, those are some pretty grueling distances yeah. there, too. So what was the first uh, the first shotgun you ever had? Well, now, the first shotgun, which is a big mistake now, uh, was a 410. Mm-hmm. Now, a 410, you got, it's a lightweight, but you got hard, you got any pellets. <laughs> so that's the worst thing I think you can ever do for a kid Interesting. Started hunting with a four ten. Hmm. Just because they just think they're terrible and that they're only shooting with like nineteen pellets. Is that well? The the thing is, you you're you're handicapped with pellets. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, excuse lack of pellets. Lack of pellets. (laughs) But now, once the the first gun that I ever bought for myself is in the museum down there at the Grand Junction right now. Is it? Okay. Uh, it was a brown and sweet 16. Was, mm. But now, <clears throat> after I was 12 and had, I guess, proved myself to be, uh, I guess, reliable, I was my dad's gun out, which is uh, 
a Browning. He had a Browning automatic, mm-hmm. sixteen gauge, and 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 it's down in the museum now too. Is it? And it was uh, it was probably a gun that fitted me better than any gun I've ever had. That's excellent. Yeah, I have one of those. Um, it's a it's a Browning. It's the, one of the light twenties. A light light twenty. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, now that's a gun. It. That my brother got when the light twenty became uh came available. Mm-hmm. Now he got the light twenty, but then about the same time that the light twenty became available, Remington came out with the eleven hundred. So I got a lightweight Remington eleven hundred. Yeah. Now the gun you had is uh, spring operated. Correct. And the uh, the eleven hundred for. Uh, Remington is a gas gas operated. operated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That little light twenty. I just feel like anytime I ever go out and hunt with it, it just swings so well. Yeah, it's, it's yep. like it. I don't know. It's like it hops up on your shoulder okay. when you put yeah. it up. Now, what but length barrel you got on that? I think it's a twenty four. 24, 26. 26. 26. Yeah, it's pretty short. I think over the years, I think someone's done. A little bit of it may be twenty four now. Yeah, okay. I think somebody cut okay. the end off of it and put Where'd a new bead on it. it. Friend of mine, okay, a friend of mine got it. I think he uh, he's pretty good at finding them in pawn shops. Yep, yep. And because uh, every now and then they'll just kind of show up somewhere. But yep. I have it and I but love now, it. But have you ever hunted yourself? A l- yes. Have you you hunted a lot? I've I don't hunt as much as I'd like to. I mean, I grew up doing it. We used to dove hunt a lot when we were kids over with the cow and shoot and. In other places, and then in college, I started to get more into waterfowl. Yeah, and loved it. First, first place I ever uh, duck hunted really was in Marks, Mississippi, and and sledge. Okay, some big rice field somewhere. And first bird I ever killed was a green winged teal. Okay, no, first bird I ever shot was a pintail, and then that same day I shot a green winged teal and a widgeon. Okay, a Drake widgeon. And now so, where was that? Sledge, Mississippi. Okay, okay, and. uh and kind of that first day, you know, it's the kind of deal where I was in college and I was too busy thinking about school to think about hunting, which now looking back at that just sounds crazy to me. But um, I decided I needed to get serious, you know. And well, take now care I of remember this. Ben, your dad, setting up a rig for you guys to shoot over there at the field. Yep. Now, did Ben do a lot of hunting? Yes, Ben did. Ben did a lot more than I did. Ben yeah. was a Ben was a deer hunter, still is, and. I, I would go with them, but I'd fall asleep in the deer stand. <laughs> I was I was in it for breakfast, and just hanging out with my brother. Now we shot a lot all growing up. Every every year for Ben's, I don't know if you remember, Ben would do that that birthday. He would have um, an annual skeet shoot, and yeah, so the yeah. father son skeet shoot, yeah, and yeah. You, you'd always come drop in on us, and you'd bring Ben a box of that double A <laughs> yeah, okay. Winchester, and uh, and that was always fun. But we always shot a lot. Um, but just didn't, uh, some of it was access, just didn't, we just never had a bunch of land, so I couldn't just walk, you know, walk hedgerows or do anything like but that. But now you or, see, I was pretty lucky to say, be stationed at various places where you had mm-hmm. a skeet range. Yeah. And, uh, I shot a lot of skeet. Yeah. And then I, uh, actually to, I, I liked it, but I, Loaded my own shells for a long time. Did you? Yeah. I'm I'm thinking about doing that for my light twenty. Yeah. <laughs> because it doesn't like modern shell lengths because so many modern guns now are chambered for th- three up to three inches. Yep. 
And so the Browning, so with the quality control, I don't know what you want to say, is like Rio or Federal or one of those other ammunition companies, they don't trim the shell casing down. So it's it's assuming that your gun can kick out a shell where after it's shot can take a three-inch shell coming out. So they'll hang up. Yeah. So I have to roll crimp. Okay. So I figured, hey, if I'm roll crimping shells, I might as well just reload my own shells. I found out, I don't think you can do it now because uh, they tell me that the stores are almost void in ammunition. They're they're low. Huh? They're low. People are buying up ammunition. Yeah, well, that's like crazy. Uh, and uh, it is a company that got a contract to use a lot of Remington and, and I think Winchester facilities. It uh, is loading now for Remington and loading for Winchester. Mm. In fact, I, I bought a little stock in it the other day because <laughs> I, I felt like uh, we needed we needed some ammunition. That's right. <laughs> so walk me th- walk me through what made you want to load. Was it just the getting more into the whole process of what you're doing and how it's fun and it's something to do, or was there something in the ammunition that you were shooting? that you thought was lacking that you could add to it. But now, uh, what, what, who who promoted shooting for you the most? Did your dad really? Was was, he a big promoter? Yeah, he was. And you were. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, every time we'd see you, you'd ask us what we were doing. And we used to to go down to the museum a lot. Um, But, I mean, dad was the the biggest promoter for us for shooting. And that was always Well, you see, yeah. The thing I think we get concerned about today, for example, somebody just asked me about field trialing. Mm-hmm. And I had hunted, and they killed a lot of birds. And I was very fortunate after I retired to be able to go to Texas and hunt, mm-hmm. where the birds were more plentiful. And, yep. and, and you know, after you get where <coughs> you kill a lot, you just feel like it's a... Uh, you could do a, something a, a little more challenging. Mm-hmm. So that's how why I took up field trialing. Yeah. And I ended up with a, a couple of good dogs, and I was able to hunt and field trial yeah. after I retired. But now, like when I was at Okinawa, it was sort of hard to find uh, <laughs> a good bird dog on Okinawa. <laughs> but now when I was stationed in Hawaii, Hawaii had a lot of uh, valley quail. Really? And Molokai had a lot of valley quail. So you, I had no idea. Okay. In fact, those cubbies sometimes had 100 birds in them. Wow. Unbelievable. In fact, uh, somebody, when I was in Hawaii, was talking about cubbies with 100 birds. I says, hey, I've been quail hunting all my life. I think you're full of stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I go, somebody takes me over to Molokai. And we walked into a covey, and it just looked like the sky was just filled up with birds. Wow. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And you spent the rest of the day without dogs, which I don't enjoy anymore. Right. uh, Just walking up birds and and shooting them. Wow. uh, That's wild. That's so cool. I'm assuming were those birds brought there and released and over the years just propagated? I don't know exactly how how that area became uh, populated with this valley quail, but 
we can't account for how they, our area today or 40 years ago, 100 years ago, is populated with Bob Whites. Well, that's true. Where did they originally come from? That's true. I they were here. The I remember when I was a kid <clears throat> going out with my dad, six, seven, or eight years old, finding, you know, several cubbies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I can't account now for why there's no quail around. Are yeah. very few. Yeah. Now, when I first moved here in 1989 or 1990, we had a. The Bob Whites would sing in this between here and your house. I could, I remember when I was a kid at night in the evening. I remember I could hear them. Okay. And I could whistle, and we'd go back and forth. Yeah. I, I okay. remember that so fondly when I was a kid. But now, you for the last 15 years, I haven't seen a quail or mm. heard one in this area. Really. There used to be a cubby back here between here and uh, Griffins. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There, I haven't even. I haven't heard them. I haven't. There's um, in the morning, the WMA down here is doing some work for quail rehabilitation or doing rehab it or making better habitat. And every now and then you'll hear, you can hear the covey calls in the morning. Now where is this? Just off. Oh yeah, you can hear the. Okay, okay. you can okay. hear that in the morning, and I've only twice seen little guys going, but it's only been like three or four quail just walking yep, across yep, the road, yep. down the road on the little gravel bed. But and, now they could be quail so, that have been released. Too. It's true. It's true. Yeah, yep. but um, they are working towards that. But I've heard some theories promoted that the reason, and I'm curious to see what you think. One of the theories that I've heard promoted is that. It's the farming practices where farmers are not, they're going all the way edge to edge on trees. And you can't hardly blame them, but so farmers going edge to edge on trees. And then also they're not, some of the grading that they're doing, they're not leaving those little swales and cut throughs where where water would normally hold, which means that you're going to get some hardwood growth and you're going to have that, that word I've heard used the most is that early successional habitat. Is that, what, is that a valid theory? Well, what you now, think, or uh, think it's predation, uh, or a lot of people think I'm an expert on a lot of things. <laughs> but now, if somebody would say, "What is your theory on why there's so few mm-hmm. quail?" I would say I can name you all kinds of reasons, sure, but I can't tell you what the most dominant reason would be. Mm-hmm. In other words, like you say. The farming habits of uh, <coughs> have um, eliminated a lot of cover. Mm-hmm. Then herbicides have killed a lot of the things that the birds eat. Mm-hmm. In like fact, all the little seeds on the edge rows, right. and foxtail, and everything. In other words, it's killed a, a lot of things. And then uh, we don't know the effect of uh, of the carbon. In other words. Automobiles, exhaust. Interesting. In other words, when you think about, just think about if you drive from here to Memphis, which you do frequently. I do. Hey, it's unbelievable the amount of carbon dioxide that you run through your exhaust. Sure. Then you think about all the planes that land in the Memphis airport, all the FedEx Mm. planes, all the commercial. In other words, see, but I don't know whether that's... uh, 
uh, the primary reason or not. Interesting. And then the uh, the thing, like you say, the farmers just farm the maximum amount of, and then leave no no Nothing seeds, on the side. no yeah. corn, no soybeans, no. Well, even for deer, they're so efficient now. Yeah. You know, you used to just be able to like have a have a have a cornfield, and then that gets cut, and there's enough waste corn that's all in that field. You don't even need to put yeah. food plots out. Yeah. But the uh, but then you you still got to worry about the whole twelve months of the year. Mm-hmm. Everything needs to be fed. Yeah. Got to eat twelve months out of the year, like uh, yeah, I, we said earlier. We raised hay, corn, and fodder, and all this stuff to feed the animals during the winter. Right. When you can't raise stuff in the uh, yeah uh, in, in in the summertime, but but you see here again. Now what? It's the primary reason for these quails. Some species experts say habitat, food, uh, herbicides, just on and on and on. And I don't know what the right what. The so it may not be one thing; it just may be this great combination exactly. of exactly things. That's exactly interesting. Exactly. So, what got you into field trialing? It seems like it was a pretty natural natural progression from hunting to just enjoying good dog work. And well. Uh, I went in my first field trial, believe it or not, in 1946. Where was that? In Newport, Rhode Island. Okay. We had a bunch of uh, a bunch of guys up there that did field trials, mm-hmm. and you said, "Well, what in the world's a field trial?" In other words, where you take the dogs out, and you uh, uh, what is it to uh, summer late hunting situation? Yes. Except you do it when judges. And then people said, who's got the best bird dog? <laughs> well, the best, best way to find out who's got the best bird dog, hey. Just put them all together. Put, put them out there and put a, uh, a confident judges and says, hey, this dog did better than this. Yeah. And then, you know, field trials has gotten so um, competitive. Mm-hmm. And, but now, Mr. What's-His-Name just asked me down at the post office a while ago, only had 21 dogs running in the national here next, starting next week. Just 21? 21. Only 21 placed or only 21 entered? 21 entered, which means I think it's the 21 that's qualified, which means. How does that compare, I guess, from, how does that compare to the early 90s? I mean, is that a lot fewer? Well, it's a lot fewer dogs. Yeah. and uh, Which means, and there's more championship stakes, but. It's hard to, to so evaluate why you've got more stakes and less dogs. It's hard. I mean, I don't under, I'm not sure I understand it, but there was one point I was trying to get across. Uh, competition and it cost. Yeah. In other words, can you afford, and I'm not trying to be super personal, to buy yourself a, a thirty thousand dollar dog, or buy you two or three dogs and raise some puppies, can you afford a big fancy pickup truck? Can you afford a big dog trailer and a horse trailer? Yeah. And can you afford two horses? And can you afford a pass? In other words, and then just to travel to all the different locations and travel to all the things. In other words, it's got to almost be your full time occupation. Exactly. So here yeah. again, we don't have. Um, an ability now to have any young people 
right, to take up the sport. Now, if you look at the guys that are, it's here somewhere. It's going to run the trial. The handlers are old timers, do nothing but handle dogs. The owners are doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs. You know, they've got to can afford it and what have you. And uh, I've been lucky to have one or two dogs, but not sure. a, a truckload like some of the folks do. Some of the folks got four or five dogs. Mm. Well, some of them too are professional handlers, like you said, handling other people's. Oh yeah, other yeah, it's dogs. A, hey, it's a business. It is. It's a business. It is. It be- so we, when you ran your dogs, yeah, what, just for for those listening who might not be familiar with the trials, what kind of dog and? Okay, well now I've had pointers and setters. Do you have a Do you have a preference? I know I, have, I, I really enjoy pointers. Okay, for some reason, I mean, I guess you, uh, I guess to each his own. To each his own. Yeah. In other words, it's like, uh, hey, who selected your girlfriend? Uh, hey, must have been me, and you, hey, <laughs> pick your own. But uh, I've had uh, one dog that I own actually won 11 championships. Really? So What was his name? Uh, Jerry's Runaway Bandit. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry's Runaway Bandit. I, yeah. I, I've got pictures of her. Uh, I'd love to see him. Well, her picture's in the, in the museum. Yep. Yeah, she's in the Hall of Fame. Yep. And uh, I've had... Uh, Another champion dog called um, Cherokee Frederick. Now, he won the Mississippi Championship and uh, was a very attractive dog. Now, that dog right up there, Sally's dog, now, we never made a field trial dog out of it, but she was a gorgeous hunting dog. Yeah. In other words, Sally used to yell, said, look at my dog. Hey, you're pointing beautiful. Majestic, she used to yell, majestic, uh, her dog. <laughs> her, her dog is majestic. But now, that dog turned out to be, uh, the stud fee for one of my pointer, well, one of my setter dogs. I had a male setter that was a pretty nice dog. Never made a championship out of him, but he bred, it was bred to a, a bitch in the, uh, uh, the guy that had the litter of pups says, "You got to come and get your get your puppy." I says, "I don't want a puppy, but it, uh, mm. got her in the loop, and she uh, took the, the dog, and she turned out to be a nice bird finder, good looking. What do you want to say about your dog? Yeah, yeah. you." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. And she was majestic. Oh, she was the majestic one. And she was the grandmother to uh, this uh, po- uh, oh, the, the, the recent dog that won the national championship twice. Really? Yeah. Really? Yes. Yeah. Right yeah. there on the wall. Yeah. Now, but now, about that? Well, we campaigned her for a while. Okay. But now, help me with the terminology. I, I'm familiar with the trials, but I don't. I'm not familiar with campaign. Do you mean like you went? Like, In other words, you taking her to field trials. So like a full season of trials. Yeah, yeah, okay, exactly. okay. So wait, we'd take her to the field trials, and and she, we also took her hunting. Mm-hmm. But we took her hunting before we took her to field trials, and we took her to Texas, where there's a lot of birds, and she really learned to be a super bird finder. That's excellent. But now she did not have the uh, 
super style that the judges are looking for when you're looking at campaigning dogs or field trotting dogs uh, to, uh, to to actually win. Say that again. <laughs> oh, it's. <laughs> oh, okay. See, I'm learning something. I like that. So now, she was a uh, just a neat bird finder. Yeah, but not quite stylish enough to be campaigner for a lifetime. Understood. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think there's um, it's been interesting. There's kind of been a resurgence lately of bird hunting, and uh, or at least upland dogs, and and there's a there's a group out there now called Project Upland. And they do, it's it's kind of a, it's a way where upland hunters are kind of finding each other all throughout. So there's a lot of guys who are starting, young guys, my age and younger, who said, and this this bird hunting's awesome. Yeah, and yeah. Hunting, hunting over dogs is awesome. Oh, and so yeah. You're seeing a lot of, of people going back to the sport. But I guess one of the things that, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is because I feel like there's a lot of people who don't understand the history of it and the trials and and they're starting to get more into trials but i don't think a lot of them know that the national bird dog museum is in grand junction tennessee well that they talk a little bit about the founding of that okay now what happened uh i started coming here in 1978 or something even yeah. though i knew about grand junction from a long time ago my life and the quality of dogs I had never brought me here until 1978. Mm. And that's why I brought this uh, the bandit dog I was telling you about. Now, she ran out here four different times. Never won, mm -hmm. but she performed a couple of times very well. And she won West Tennessee, which is a big, big trial and what have you. Won a lot of trials out in the West, uh, uh, what have you. But now... Coming back here and seeing people involved with dogs. Now, this is above the hunting level. Now, this is a field trial level. Right. Uh, hunting is, is a lot cheaper than field trialing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did I got a hold up? You remember Mr. Dunn? Mm -hmm. Wilson Dunn. Yeah. Now, uh, there's been a lot of criticism on who did what regarding that museum. But now I like to look at it as a joint effort. Mm -hmm. It was me, Mr. Dunn, Bernie Mathis, John O'Neill. We're all involved in the thing. But now I was uh, looked at myself as a pusher of the whole idea mm -hmm. because <clears throat> if I could back up a little bit, sure. In uh, the late 1960s and the early 1970s. A group of people got together that were, um, I guess you would call them the, the elite of field trials. Okay. In other words, the rich owners did own dogs. Those proficient professional handlers did handle the dogs for the rich guys. Mm -hmm. And the guys that had won the national championship out here and, and had won a lot of trials. They got together. They were going to build a museum, and uh, <coughs> Mr. Bill Brown had already approved the Field Trial Hall of Fame concept. 
In other words, where a few people and a few dogs were elected to the Hall of Fame. And he thought that a museum ought to be built to highlight the lives of those people. Yeah. Okay. So I'm talking about now everybody that was big yeah. in the business. Well, you need money to build a building. Like you said, what, what do you need to build a house for you and that new wife? Mm-hmm. You need money. Yes, you do. Hey, hey. So if you're going to build almost anything, you need money. Well, these guys pledged a lot of money, and only a few of them actually donated money. Mm. Okay. Now, when the effort started uh, to get a little stale, they said, oh, we really need to do like those churches do. We need a fun, bunch of fundraisers. So they, they, they came up with a bunch of fundraisers. Hey, and they f- finally found out we're spending more money than we were collecting. <laughs> so that effort just dried, d- died stone dead sure. in their early 1970s. Well, now I started coming back here. Now, Mr. Dunn had a little tiny museum in the store, mm-hmm. and it's nothing, I thought it was great. But then I said, after you, had, uh, you love the dogs a little more, just like you're talking about you, the young people now mm-hmm. are loving to hunt, to getting excited about hunting. Yeah, and the full experience of the, uh, the watching experience. good dog work. And- so I felt like, I said, hey, isn't it a shame that that effort failed back in that, Oh, to start with, yeah. I mean, drop, drop dead. So, uh, Mister Dunn and I got together, and we bought that land that the museum is on. In other words, I can tell you what we paid for twenty thousand bucks. Okay, we buy the land, and we have a bunch of people look at us and says, "Hey." Who in the world is Gary Lockie and who in the world is William, uh, Wilson Dunn? Why is it they think they can build a, a museum when all these big VIPs earlier failed? Hmm. Well, the thing that I did, I'd be, I'd, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but I had an MBA, and so I had a lot of business experience and sure. a lot of school experience. I said, well... You need X amount of money. We got the land now. Right. You need X amount of money to build so much you need for per square foot. And that's how I come up with the twenty the forty eight uh forty eight hundred square foot for the first building. Hmm. In other words, how much it cost per foot to build it? And we figured how much money we had to raise to build this building. Sure. But now we didn't have any visions of doing a million dollar job or a, a two million dollar Carnegie Museum <laughs> or a two million dollar Smithsonian or whatever what it would cost. So we got figured out we could pay we could underwrite forty eight hundred square feet. Okay. So we started collecting small amounts of money, and it looked like we had enough to say build a building. So we poured this concrete slab. Well, then the word got out 
that those clowns are serious. They're really doing something about it. I love it. That uh, that they're they're making they're taking a vision to reality. They're, they're, in other words, they're not just going to talk about it's it. Not, we're not talking about it. They're doing it. That's right. And then the day that it got dedicated, it was fully paid for. Beautiful. Okay, but then the other things you need to know about to say raise money. If you're going to raise money for things that are historical, educational, museum related, and so forth, you get a five hundred one c three, and you can tell people, hey, you make this donation, and you can write it off in your taxes. Yeah. Well, I struggled away and, and got this 501c3 for the organization. And we were coasting along, and that's where Concrete Slab, they're serious. 501c3, they're serious. 501c3, they're collecting money. 501c3, they're building the building. So far. Yeah. Hey, and the thing just, uh, Robert from... They're just, it grew yeah. because something positive had been done. Whereas before, everybody talked about having something exotic. Yep. And how do you go about it? And nobody was pushing the effort. And at the end of the day, sometimes it's just saying, all right, we're going to stop talking about it. Yeah. Let's get it done. Yeah. yeah. That's, but but the, location, the, the people... Here. Okay, now, yeah. if you one of the things that you might do... Now, this is besides what you're doing now, and I don't know what you're doing now, but sure. go down to that wall at the intersection mm-hmm. and look at that timeline that's on one of those things. Okay. You're talking about the monument that's at the corner of 7 and or 18, 18. and 57. Exactly. I went back to like 1850 where we had uh, the hunters. The hunters are responsible for field trials. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're running your dog, I'm running my dog, but they're both looking good. So me and you almost get in a fight on whose dog's the best. Sure. So to solve that problem, we need a, an outside judge to to, to decide it to, impartially. To, so, so, so that's speak. how your field trial got started. got started. But now I got a timeline on that thing. It's interesting to, to look at. Yeah. In other words, just as a matter to me, a matter of interest. This starts back in like the 1850s, 1874, where you had the first field trial. Mm. Then you get into the national championship, and you get into the people involved and so forth. Hey, and you find out that all these Yankees in the early uh, middle of 1800s used to come here to hunt quail because it's a nice place to hunt. Mm -hmm. So to me, Strand Junction was a justifiable place just because of what happened back in the early days of hunting. Right. Then field trialing. And then that, uh, kind of a natural place. Well, it's also right near Ames and it's, and, and, and Dunn's was, was there too. And it was just a place where everyone came. It was kind of the, you know, well, it's sort of the elite, the elite of of, of field trials. Mm. And 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 in other words, it's worth looking at. Yeah. But then I got a hold of um, um, our representative. 
the senator from this just retired. Caught Blackburn? No, not a guy. Uh, no, not the state. I'm blanking myself. Uh, Dolores Gresham. Gresham. Okay, got her and somebody else to sort of get a hold of the governor. Mm-hmm. And the governor declared Grand Junction as a field trial in the bird dog capital of the world. Now, that we got a big certificate of that on that plaque down by that wall. That's right. Signed by the governor. <laughs> so in it, other words, you got people down in Waynesburg, Georgia, saying, oh, we've been big field trials our whole lifetime. But I say, big in field trial, but well, I'm talking about bird dogs and field trials. Right. So right. we got to. Talking about hunting and we're talking about trialing. We're talking about both exactly. Those things. Hey, dogs. 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 That's right. Dogs. Dog, <laughs> hey, but it's worth stopping and looking at. I I used to run up there all the time. Mom's got a few lamps in there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hey, fun. as a matter of fact, she gave me a lamp. She did. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, don't take it away. I don't know where it is. <laughs> I'm not taking hey. it. <laughs> but uh, those are nice, nice things. But that's sort of like a story of how something gets started. But you. Every project needs a driver mm-hmm. to take somebody to really push it over the in edge. In other words, I look at things. I did a lot of research and stuff in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're really looking for people for, for a project. And if you want a project to be successful, it's got to have somebody to drive it. That's right. And, and I don't care what it is. It can be big or little. In other words, when you're looking at something that's a success or failure, invariably it goes back to the leader. Mm. Just think, just think through that. Yeah. If, uh, but now if you got a guy that just like to have his name attached to it and not do any work, you're gonna find out that project falls through the cracks. True. And probably doesn't get completed. Mm. But now that's just some of my philosophy on success or failure. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Gary. We have another one coming with him. Uh, in that episode, he'll talk a little bit more about his military service and about a couple good dogs making some great retrieves. It's a fun one. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, before I let you go, though, I want to thank a few of our sponsors. Uh, Mossy Oak. Mossy Oak has been there with Rolling Thunder from the very beginning, and we're uh, really proud to, to represent them and to be working closely with them on, on some of our projects. So thank you for that. Also want to thank Lucky Duck Premium Decoys and Shen Gear. So with that, we'll see you on the next one.